As a historian of colonial enslavement and its legacies, I know how those particular histories have been shaped or have shaped societies from Britain, France, Denmark, Kenya, Cameroon, Mauritius, Madagascar, Trinidad, Guadeloupe, Jamaica, Brazil, or Lisbon. The scars or ramifications of the past are still visible and very much embedded into certain social practices. They have shaped economic history of these societies. Yet, arguments have been put forward in favor of, well, not telling the history of enslavement during Black History Month, because the history of people of African descent is not just about slavery, which is true, valid point. But my position is that as a historian of enslavement and their legacies, I do talk about that history all year long and not just during Black History Month. So I'm not going to stop because it's Black History Month. Now, before I move on to my point, I'd like to wish you all a happy UN decade of people of African descent. We are indeed halfway through that decade and yet many people are unaware that the UN United Nations has acknowledged that there was an imbalance in the way the stories and cultures of people of African descent were taught, shared, and how they simply have been partially erased. To address that imbalance, the UN de declared that 2015 to 2024 would be a, de a decade dedicated to the stories, histories, contributions of people of African descent in the world. So happy Black History Month and happy decade. Now, if we're going to talk about the history of enslavement, why focus on the transatlantic slave trade and slavery? After all, Arab trans-Saharan slavery was important too. It went from North Africa to and through the Red Sea and was about 9 million enslaved people transported to Muslim countries. The Indian Ocean, about 4 million enslaved Africans transported from the Swahili port to Oman, Iran, in the Indian subcontinent. Well, we talk a lot about the transatlantic slave trade because, well, of the time scale. 1555, roughly, for Britain, to 1834. It's measurable. We have qualitative and quanti quantitative data. The legacy spread over three, over three centuries after its abolition. It covers other areas, questions of race, gender, identity, power, memory, etc. We know that it had an impact on the people of African descent. It paved the way to 19th century European colonization. It cemented economic dependency. It forged and crystallized racist attitudes. And historians have measured the impact of the transatlantic slavery in Africa, America, the Caribbean, and Europe. For Africa, for example, we have David Altis in 1988 with the income per capita. Briefly, the income per capita is an indicator of a country's wealth. He used that. Manning's demographic changes and simulation model in 1990. He looked at the decline of population and how that had an impact on workforce, on the workforce in the continent, and its ability to develop and how family structures were disrupted. 2000, Lovejoy's transformation theory. He looked at social dislocation, death rates in Africa and concluded that Africans experienced slavery not only in the Americas, but also in Africa. And emancipation came later in Africa. So slavery had a tragic economic impact on the continent. What we remember about these eras? 
We remember stories about colonization, colonialism, stories of humanitarianism. Save the children, save Africans, send money, send support. For other people, it's about tourism, safari, wildlife. For others, it's about the past, sites of memory in Africa, Gori Island in Senegal, Ouida in Benin. It's about slave tourism. And slave tourism is a thriving industry in those countries. It is about monetizing trauma, one could argue, but it is also about surviving economic hardship and incredibly difficult life conditions despite foreign visits. Dark tourism, in this instance, slave tourism is a complex business. Dark tourism has been studied by many scholars, Seaton, Dan, and many others. It is a place that have become of interest because death took place there. In this case, there are places where death, torture, pain took place for nearly three centuries. These events had profound implications in the stratification of post-slavery societies. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these societies, some of them. Senegal, Kenya, and Mauritius, before bringing it all back to Britain. Based on our European-funded research called SLAFNET, a dialogue between Europe and Africa in post-slavery society, my team and I, in the work package one that I'm leading, are looking at questions of citizenship, marginalization, and discrimination in post-slavery societies in Europe, Africa, and the Indian Ocean. Yes, slavery existed in Africa, in Senegal, or rather, Senegambia, before the arrival of Europeans. However, the colonial legacies of chattel slavery have profoundly changed these regions. Senegal, nowadays, and before that, centuries ago, has about 90% of the population that is Muslim. And Senegal was France's kind of lab for integration, experimentation, about various policies about colonialism. It was also a site of resistance from African elite that was educated in France. Senegal's first president was Leopold Sédar Senghor, one of the fathers of the Negritude movement. The movement claimed its African descent and its pride in Africanism, yet Senghor remained very close to France. How did slavery affect the population? Well, nowadays, people of slave descent have known names. We know them through their names, some of them. This is not something that is openly discussed by Senegalese society, but the economic and social stratification are based on lineage related to slavery era. The discriminations are less subtle when people decide to marry. But thorough research is done about the bride and groom's ancestry, and people have to provide sometimes documents about them. Education is open to all, but who gets to have and occupy a certain post is highly contentious. Discrimination is subtle on a daily basis, often unspoken and yet evidenced by numerous research done by my colleagues in the project at the University Chekanta Diop in Dakar. A few countries away in Kenya, the question of citizenship is still very, citizenship, sorry, is still very much at the heart of the debates among certain populations. After the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, and after the victory over Napoleon, Britain was able to demand that other nations stop the slave trade. It tasked the Royal Navy to roam the ocean to police the Atlantic and the Indian Ocean. 
In the 19th century, enslaved Africans were rescued from various ships and settled in various places in West and East Africa. Some were placed in Mombasa, a port in Kenya. Mombasa was occupied by the Portuguese, the Omani, and the British. The port was the door to the Indian Ocean, but also to East, um, East Africa and the Indian subcontinent. Another story can be told about black presence in the Middle East, in India, Pakistan. There are communities in India who have been living there for the last 300 years and are barely talked about. We are looking at those stories in our project. But to come back to Kenya, in the 19th century, rescued African captives were taken by British missionaries to be educated. They formed, some of them formed the colonial elite and intermediaries between British colonial administrators and the rest of the population. They had been settled, they were settled in Frere Town. They married, settled, and those descendants of free slaves are not officially recognized by the Kenyan government as one of the more than 40 ethnic groups that make up the country. In 2014, a bill aimed at seeking compensation from the British government for um, alleged human rights violation on people of Frere Town was tabled in Kenyan's parliament. The bill also called on the Kenyan government to recognize or rather grant citizenship to the community in Frere Town. The bill was not passed. This was happening while Kenya was successfully managing to force the British government to apologize for colonial brutality and violence during the Myanmar rebellion. Now that research has been done by my colleague Marie-Pierre Ballarin, who's the lead of the, the EU project, of the whole project. But I want to move to Mauritius, located on the east of the continent and close to the Swahili port and Indian Ocean, a crossroad between various worlds, the Middle East, Oman, Yemen, East Africa, the Indian subcontinent. We know that the Dutch settled in the island in 1638. They brought African captives to the island. The islands rapidly become, became a creolized society where you saw Arabs, people from Madagascar, and from other places, and Europeans, of course. But stereotypes and racist measures kept people of African descent at the bottom of the social ladder. 1721, the French took the island and renamed it Ile de France. Nearly 80 years later, 1810, the British took the island and abolished the slave trade and slavery, and yet illegal trade continued. It continued because Mauritius was a very important sugar island. After the abolition, 1834, the British government decided to tackle the problem of labor shortage by importing indentured labor from India. Meanwhile, the apprenticeship system aimed at keeping the former enslaved in plantations continued. And after the abolition, you had a few black uh, landowners, but slowly, their lands were slowly dispossessed in various means, quite often illegal means. A century later, the creation of a new constitution in 1948 did not improve the situation of former enslaved and for people of African descent. 1993, we have a Creole priest, Roger Servo, who talked about le malaise créole, which is a Creole malaise, which was basically a set of discriminations that 
actually were born during the slave trade and during slavery and were at the basis of Mauritian society. While this was happening, Mauritius was also going through various changes. UNESCO took an interest in the island and supported heritage preservation um, and tourism to enhance the economy of the island. Mauritius also became uh, a place for offshore banking. The population grew, but those of African descent actually diminished. Today, more than 70% of the population is of Indian descent, and we have that stratification hierarchy. The Truth and Justice Commission set up between 2009 and 2011 made a number of recommendations in Mauritius about social inequality, exclusion of people of African descent in Mauritius. The commission was led by my colleague in the SLAFNET project, Professor Vijaya Tilok. Last year, <coughs> excuse me, last year we brought the Minister of Education and other officials in Mauritius back to the table to explain what they have done or what they have been doing. They promised then a number of things, including working on the question of land restitution and on a museum dedicated to the history of the island. We talked about the fact that despite UNESCO's support to heritage sector, people of African descent living almost on those world heritage sites were those who had little access to schools, transport, and career training. The only training supported by the government are those related to the hospitality industry, but at entry level, not managerial level. Last year, when I spent some time in Mauritius, the colonial spatial division is reinforced, I noticed, by newcomers with new customs. There are areas owned by white South Africans, very wealthy white South Africans, where security is abnormally and visibly tight. We were, for example, prevented from having access to certain beaches and we had people with Kalashnikovs. You have gated communities and all that. They have their own supermarket, somewhat all white schools. It's as if apartheid was reproduced at a smaller scale. The same goes for an increasing number of wealthy Russian families. So Mauritian, Mauritius have become a favorable terrain to re reproduce colonial inequality and post-colonial inequalities. But many are fighting back. They're fighting against this on a ba daily basis through various grassroots projects that really need the support, our support. What about the impact in the Caribbean? Well, I won't dwell on that one. Why? Because it has been extensively studied by esteemed colleagues, and I wouldn't do them justice if I just give a list of names. Hilary Beckles, of course, but outstanding, amazing scholar, Professor Vreni Shepherd, and many others. Yes, I want to pay homage to a black woman. Now, what about the impact in Britain? It has been analyzed. From Eric Williams, Joseph Inikori, who argued that Britain owed its industrial revolution and its regional development to the proceeds of slave labor, to James Wolven, who showed how certain goods such as tea, coffee, tobacco, and of course, sugar, became indispensable to British consumers. 
The recent UCL British Slave Ownership Legacy database provides us with excellent information about the legacies of the past. It maps out the places and names of those who received compensation money after the abolition, 20 million pounds in that century's um, money. And how that money was invested partly in Britain, in banking, infrastructures, education and cultural industries. So Britain did vastly benefited from centuries of slave trade and slavery, and that has been widely, widely documented. At this point, telling you or reminding you of the story of Britain's role in the transatlantic slave trade and slavery is necessary. Let's start with one figure, 3.1 million. 3.1 million is more than the population of Birmingham today. Actually, it's 2.8. It's also the number of African captives who were forced to board British slave vessels. How did it start? Brief overview. The first contacts between the English and Africans um, were scattered until the, the mid-16th century. 1555, John Locke, a London merchant captain, returned to London with the small African captives that he bought in Shama, nowadays Ghana. And Locke opened the door to a practice of... Um, using African captives in wealthy homes. 1557, English captain William Towson, back to Plymouth, his hometown. He brought gold, African captives, not for sale, but to show them off to the city. But it was really John Hawkins who initiated the kingdom to the transatlantic slave trade in 1562. 1568, Hawkins and his cousin, Francis Drake, attacked a Spanish, Spanish vessels they seized the goods, including the human cargo. Queen Elizabeth I supported these enterprises. She even lent her ship, the Jesus of Lubeck. These acts of piracy scandalized Spain, but the queen refused to take punitive measures against the two explorers. The slave trade was very lucrative, but poorly organized. So the monarchy took upon itself to put in place measures to regulate it. So we have 1666, Charles II, and his brother, James the Duke of York, who set up the Royal Adventurers Trading to Africa. It was basically monarchs and families and friends who were trading to Africa. It was elitist and not necessarily efficient. 1672, the company was then reorganized and became the Royal African Company. It was a monopolistic organization. It meant that only vessels chartered by the Royal African Company were allowed to set sail to Africa. But it enjoyed a relative economic success. But traders and merchants from provincial ports wanted a piece of this. So they petitioned, gathered, and they managed to convince Parliament to stop the monopoly. So that actually opened the door to mass deportation, I want to use that term, anachronistic as it is, of African captives to the Americas. So just to give you a few figures of slave economy and profits. Between 1699 and 1707, British and British colonial ports mounted to 12,000 slaving voyages, more than 12,000. From London, 3,351. From Bristol, 2,100, 2, more than that. From Liverpool, more than 5,200. Now, <clears throat> 
The way I just told the story is from a position of power. I told you about Britain's, Britain's role, intentions, and profit. What I didn't tell you is how life was like for enslaved in the Caribbean, how planters run their estates in how slave rebellions and daily acts of resistance threaten the whole institution of slavery over time. What I didn't tell you is stories of rape, torture, subjugation, humiliations over several centuries inflicted upon children, women, and men. What I didn't tell you is what chattel slavery meant for pregnant mothers who knew that their child would be subjugated, sold, branded, and used in other plantations until they die, quite often in pain, because enslavement in the West Indies and America was a system based on brutality and fear. Planters were out outnumbered by enslaved people, so they reigned through sheer violence. So, I won't tell you here, even though it's very important, is the overused story of British abolition. Imagine that. Imagine a page of a book. And that page is used to tell you generations after generations the story of a whole book. Doing that obviously would have an impact on learners. They would have a rather limited understanding of what enslavement meant. Now, information about the British role in the transatlantic slavery are largely accepted by most historians nowadays, but they have caused controversies over decades. For decades. The controversies have, have been about numbers of enslaved, but also about the narrative of humanitarianism that went along with 19th century and 20th century colonization. Behind debates about narratives lies the question of power, visibility, and how Britain, just like most European nations, is trying to deal or not deal with a past that is source of trauma for part of its citizens. So it's also about what has been forgotten, erased, or simply was unknown at the time. It's about community stories being part of a national narrative. It is about history and memories. It is about collective memory and how they shape collective identities. But what is collective memory? It's a process that involves past and present, individual and collective stories, public and private spheres, process of remembering and forgetting, history, myth, nostalgia, trauma, conscious and unconscious fears and desires. There is still a delineation between history and memory, but both history and memory are, have always been social, political, and ideological tools that allow scholars, politicians, but scholars to understand societies at given moments. Moving from one story through the study of an individual memory has been defined by philosopher Paul Ricoeur. For Ricoeur, memory is individual. It starts with one person, and that person shares their memory, their stories, with a group. For sociologist Maurice Alvax, memory is collective. By definition, we remember together. Then individuals take, own take ownership of those memories. So the crucial process of Transmission of knowledge and memory plays a role in the construction of both individual and collective identities. Prior to Ricoeur and Alvax, Freud, Jung, Lacan have shown that memory that is brought to the conscious mind, especially when it's painful, is healed through psychoanalysis. 
taking, talking about it, sharing it with a psychologist and moving it from the individual to the collective, to the listener or to, the, to listeners is part of a healing process. What happens when trauma is shared but does not necessarily heal, I ask you? Well, scholars have debated about what they call intergenerational trauma, but that intergenerational trauma has been called something else by Marianne Hirsch. She called it post-memory. And although Hirsch's work, outstanding work, on memory is about the Holocaust, she uses art to reconstruct what could be called memorial ruins. Her work has had a crucial impact on my work. Because in my sense, her work provides us with a critical lens to understand challenges we face when trying to articulate collective memory with post-memory. Post-memory is the memory of a traumatic past that still shaped the stories of those who did not live that, those events. So children of the Holocaust, grandchildren of the Holocaust, people whose ancestors were enslaved, deported during the transatlantic slavery, Indian Ocean slavery, centuries ago, go through post-memory, intergenerational trauma. Societies and family do not transmit early trauma. They also transmit a set of memory, set of memories and practices that have shaped these communities' identities. So it is as much about continuity as it is about new forms of identity, new formations of identity and practices. So the idea of transmission through shared practices has been defined beautifully by cultural, um, by, by, and called cultural memory by Laida and Jan Asman. So cultural memory brings to life the role of co the conscious and conscious cultural practices. Asman argued that it is not about accuracy when it comes to the stories of the past. It is not about disputing the subjectivity of individuals about that event. It's about what people chose to remember, how they chose to remember, and how they transmit that, those memories to their communities. So it is about self-identification. The work on memory is by no means peaceful. The articulation of na language, narrative, counter-memory has been explored by many. For Stuart Hall, language plays a role in representation. Representation shapes memory through often painful process because memory, let's not kid ourselves, memory is about power. Counter-memory then, as defined by Ilan Gorzieff, could therefore be a useful tool for communities to fight back. Memory is a work of reductions of various ideas, memories, identities. So this process has an impact on the sense of belonging and the question of citizenship. So in other words, memory, we form a memory together that is collective, we hope it's collective, and by doing that in the process, we are brought together. That's why it's so important to understand why including the narratives of so-called those on the margins, BAME communities as, as we are called, is so important to bring it to the national narrative and to teach it in schools. As societies, we feel the need to shape our identities, argued uh, historian Pierre Nora, and we do it through sites of memory or lieux de mémoire. What are those? The according to Nora, anniversaries, commemorations, commemorations, statues, 
birthdays, fraternal orders. One could therefore argue that, and I'm arguing that black bodies, in this instance, in some instances, people of African descent in Europe, America, the Caribbean, have been and continue to be sites of memory, not simply as repository of the past marked through intergenerational transmission of trauma, but as embodied memory. The term embodied memory was used by Paul Connaughton. For Connaughton, embodied memory is a process where you inscribe physicality into the act of remembrance. Remembrance through dance, for example, food, for example, physical experience it is. The transmission of memory and act of remembrance is performative. You do it in public through a carnival, a festival. So there's a flip side to this. It's that people of African descent are often put in a position where they have to perform memory. Many of us have heard the meaning, no, but where are you really from? In my case, I was born in Cameroon, so I'm here, I'm from here, I'm from there. I'm a citizen of nowhere, a citizen of the world. You choose. But for those born here, the question is really complex. The answer is even more complex because they have been put in a position where they have to perform memory. They have to perform identity. Now, let us turn to the British context. People of African descent, be they ancestors of colonized, ancestors of enslaved, have started long before the 20th and 21st century debates about memorialization. They have worked on the transmission of their stories and history through various forms. They did that even while slavery was in full force. 20th and 21st century black British communities want to be able to play a crucial role in the way the national narrative of enslavement is taught. I said it, I'll keep on saying it. Port cities such as London, Liverpool, Bristol, and many others have often seen black communities lobbying, encouraging, forcing the heritage sector sometimes to reshape damaging or incomplete narratives of enslavement. So collective memory may be a work of reduction of various memories and interest. It may be a way to impose damaging readings of the past, but it can also be a way towards recovery. Collective memory is considered by some as an important way towards reparative or reparatory justice. I want to talk a little bit about reparations. Now, I'm not going to do the history of reparations simply because a remarkable book entitled Reparations for, for Slavery and the Slave Trade was published last year by Professor Ana Lucia Araujo. It is the first of its kind to look at the question from a historical perspective. So what I want to do instead is to try and understand how reparations are defined and by whom and in relation to Britain. Let's start somewhere. Let's look at the religious spiritual side of the argument. There is a religious and spiritual belief in secular and non-secular societies that the first step towards safer and fairer societies is also through a recognition of wrongdoings. From a religious point of view, one recognizes one's sins, apologizes, atones through a reparative gesture or measures. In 2001, during the World Conference 
on racism in Durban, South Africa, France, then most European nations acknowledged slavery as a crime against humanity. Slavery was a sin, argue some. For others, no. It was a crime. It was a crime that shaped society. Apologies took the form in France of reshaping the school programs. Memorialization projects were funded. An official date for commemoration was chosen every 10th of May. And it's quite interesting for me to study both countries because the 10th of May is a big deal. It's televised. You have the President of the Republic who's there, the leader of the Senate, the whole lot of politicians. They need to be seen to be there. It's a big deal. And a, a committee for the study of that history was appointed by the President of the Republic. In Britain, in 2003, the Cultural, Media and Sports and the Department of Education launched the Understanding Slavery Initiative to support, quote, support teaching and learning the history of the transatlantic slavery, its legacies using museum and heritage sect, uh, collections, end of quote. 2007, Tony Blair said, sorry on behalf of the nation. Prior to that late recognition, series of debates have been taking place since the end of the 1990s. Even before that, they have started in former slave cities, port cities. So the question is, are these forms of apologies, initiatives and debates forms of reparations? The answer is complex because it really depends on whose views we are talking about. CARICOM, 15 Caribbean countries, have put forward a 10-point plan, plan about the shape and form reparations should take place. They argue that based on the concept of international justice, court of justice, it is about obtaining justice for historic wrongs. And the court stated some time ago, the essential principle, I'm quoting here, the essential principle contained in the actual notion of illegal act is that reparation must, as far as possible, wipe out all the consequences of the illegal act and reestablish the situation which would, in all probability, have existed if that act had not been committed. In other words, where would Africa be today? The beneficiaries of said crimes are by law liable for restitution because even if it happens a long time ago, the benefits of that history are still felt today in society as a whole. The 10-point plan are a full apology, not expression of regrets. Repatriation, meaning the ability for some to go back to Africa if they want to settle there. Indigenous populations program. Before the arrival of Africans, there was a population there that was killed. It was a genocide for some people. Cultural institutions, public health crisis, diabetes is a problem. Illiteracy eradication, African knowledge program, psychological rehabilitation, knowledge transfer, debt cancellation. Ultimately, as Hilary Beckel stated, it's not about punishing. It is about reaching a form of reconciliation. But you can't reconcile without acknowledgement. We all remember South Africa. Various Pan-African groups have demanded cancellation and transfer of funds from the North to the Global South. In Britain, PARCO, the Pan-African African group has argued that the approach to the question of reparation should be based 
on the 1993 Abuja Reparations Declaration. Esther Stanford, who say one of the, the spokesperson of the group, noted that damages are not only based on the past, but have serious and visible implications in the present. Now, I'm not doing it justice. I'm not doing the, the, the group justice because I'm really summarizing what the essence is and not necessarily well. So for the group, it's not about paying sums of money to one individual, but about recognizing that people of African descent in the continent and all around the world are suffering from the consequences of what the group defines as genocides. The question of repatriation, repatriation sorry, is one of the many points, just as much as the right to determine the form any reparation should look like. In other words, it's not up to the former colonizer to decide what the reparations should look like. It has to come from the, the ancestors of the colonized. And they have to be able to decide what the appropriate form is. So the group says it is about an equitable redistribution of wealth that was required over centuries. You also have community groups or communities who are arguing that reparations paid only to Africa or the Caribbean would ignore the grave inequalities that exist in Britain. Because as the overwhelming majority of people of African descent in Britain are part of the working class. So I'm repeating this. Most black people are part of the working class. So they're suffering from social inequality, but also racial inequality and discrimination. Counter-arguments against any form of reparations and acknowledgement of the past are numerous. But the debate is important and cannot be avoided. Various institutions in the country are catching up, noticeably old universities. So as much as states like France, Britain, Denmark and others have collectively refused to pay any state-led reparations, other initiatives and movements are created and are on their way. What started as a minority, set, a minority set of demands from people of African descent, living in Britain and abroad, has gained momentum over the last decades and pushed the national debates on history towards memory, memorization to the story and histories of reparation, the demands for reparations. We can choose to ignore those debates. We can even enhance the voices of fear. We can continue to solely give a platform to the nostalgics of, um, of empire. We can even help the racist apologists. We have seen that. Or we can listen, share, talk, argue peacefully in order to find ways to work together for a fairer society. Thank you.